Tech Sounds presents The Conscious Capitalists. Hello and welcome to The Conscious Capitalists, hosted by two of the co-founders of the Conscious Capitalism Movement and co-authors of the Conscious Capitalism Field Guide from Harvard Business Press, Raj Sisodia and Timothy Henry. Each week, this podcast covers current events and business news and Raj and Timothy's latest thinking on what it takes to build a conscious business. For more information and notes from the show, go to www.theconsciouscapitalists.com. And now, Raj and Timothy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 11 of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my co-host, Raj Sisodia. We are co-founders of The Conscious Capitalism Movement and also co-authors of The Conscious Capitalism Field Guide by Harvard Press. Hey, Raj. Hi, Timothy. Great to be with you again. Last week, we had the good fortune to have Doug Rao, former president of Trader Joe's and CEO, former CEO of Conscious Capitalism, Inc. Doug spoke to us a little bit about his journey, both personally and professionally at Trader Joe's to Conscious Capitalism. Hi, Doug. Hey, guys. Great to be here. This week, we thought we'd dig a little deeper and have Doug share with us a little bit about the journey to developing a conscious culture and raving fans at Trader Joe's. Raj, you want to kick us off? Well, Doug, I wanted to talk to you about uh, the stakeholders. We talked a little bit about employees. Trader Joe's, of course, was known for paying employees very well, creating a wonderful culture for them to thrive in and enjoy their work. But also what attracted me to Trader Joe's as a marketing professor was your approach to marketing and the way you thought about customers. And it was very unusual. Trader Joe's does not do any advertising other than that fearless flyer, which actually people look forward to reading because it's, it's humorous. Uh, you don't do sales. Um, you don't do those, uh, what are those called? The manufacturers gives you allowance, slotting allowances, et cetera. Could you talk a little bit right. about that? How you treat your customers, not as consumers, but as true stakeholders and you earn and retain their trust through those kinds of actions. Yeah, well, I mean, in all honesty, that was something I learned from uh, Joe Cologne. I mean, he was you know, the, the one that first set in a tone in marketing that was direct, that was treating your customer as um, an adult and then sharing with them your, your learnings, being transparent. So the original flyer that was sent around was called the Insider's Report. Mm. Because it's like, hey, we're learning stuff about the food industry that other people don't know. Let's share it. You know, here's where this stuff comes from. Here's how it's made. Here's what you'd want to know about this. So uh, actually, then in the uh, uh, early mid 80s, they sold that name to Loblaws because they wanted to copy it and they, they were willing to pay six figures for it. So uh, and then they took up, I remember Joe saying, no one ever remembers what the name is. He said, oh, you know that flyer you mail out? I mean, the Insider's Report. Yeah, 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 that flyer. So he just said, I'll sell them the name if that's all they want, and I'll keep doing what I'm doing and call it Fearless Flyer. So, uh, and then the other one was uh, uh, John Shields, who was the CEO that uh, uh, came on in 1989 when uh, Joe stepped down. And John was someone who was very tuned into how important it was as a customer to have customer satisfaction, which we slowly then, our own understanding and, and my own development along with the, with the company was to recognize that customer satisfaction is good, but customer experience, literally being able to craft 
a customer's experience is way above their satisfaction. And so I think that the whole orientation of being customer focused is something which, uh, you know, I, I was a trustee for 10 years at uh, one of the really more innovative colleges in the world called uh, Olin College of Engineering. And um, they have something that's called uh, user-oriented collaborative design, which is a wonky way of saying customer-focused iterative process. So you're focused on the user, you know, on the customer, and then you're in a dance with them of iterating the product. Which is why I like to joke and say, you know, the thing about Trader Joe's is we just failed our way to success. You know, we kept trying things and, you know, um, Trader Joe's probably more than any other grocer I know churns through its product. You know, it introduces things, drops things, introduces, drops things. And, and as a percentage of their product line, they have more discontinued product than just anybody else I know. So, uh, but it's all part of an iterative process of keep trying to get more innovative, more interesting better deals for the customer. And so it's that dance that, uh, again, has the customer in the center. And then it's, let's keep iterating on this. It's, you know, it's that, you know, um, focus that says, as a stakeholder, and by the way, I think, I think one of the things that sometimes, to me, is a bit misleading, and certainly as a leader, very hard to follow, would be this idea that all stakeholders are equal you know, that everybody gets an equal share, an equal share of your time, an equal share of the everything. No, I don't think that's the case. Uh, I think that uh, one can argue, and we have within our, our own ranks, which one is more important, employees or customers. But between those two, those are the core to a conscious business is to have customers as a focus that, that become your raving fans. I mean, to Raj's first point, um, you know, certainly marketing for Trader Joe's you know, when we came, he said, we had very little money to spend. And so what you do is you look to basically have your customers become your ambassadors. So you're not so much selling them as enlisting them. And I can't tell you how successful that was when people would go just nudge and then finally just drive their neighbors nuts. Like, okay, okay, I'll go down. They'd, they'd, they'd tell us like, my neighbor's driving me nuts. I had to come see what this place was about. So <laughs> that's, the, the, that's what happens when you have a company that people feel that with integrity, they're putting me first. They're caring about me. You know, they're, they're doing things that don't, I don't feel I got to grab my wallet, you know, and guard it carefully. Now, obviously, shameless commerce, right? They're trying to get as big a market share as they can because they're trying to do it through what we would in a wonky way call voluntary exchange, where the customer gladly comes and says, I'd love to give you more of my money. Why don't you carry this and this and this, and I'll buy it from you. <laughs> and so that's the stuff that uh, uh, I think is what reduces marketing is when you are able to get your customers to be your leverage point, and they're your catalyst. So that you know, we all know, and, and, and Raj is an expert on this, that, I mean, you can spend a ton of money on advertising and TV and all that other stuff, but we have a natural barrier, all of us, against having someone else yell at us on TV or on radio and stuff. There's nothing like a trusted, reliable, a friend or reference that says, oh, hey, have you tried out you know, this? And that's gold. I love that, Doug. And it, um... And I love that distinction about, you know, in a sense, trying to create raving fans. Um, 
but more importantly, doing it consistently. Because in my experience, you, a lot of clients that I work with, yeah, they have some people who are raving fans. But the critical issue is, are 80% of the people that are coming in <laughs> experiencing this as raving fans rather than just the top 10%? And, and I think that, that, that creating that culture of raving fans and that focus so uh, is not easy. And I know that at Trader Joe's, you actually, you know, drove a change in the culture around that. And because culture is so important and connecting that customer to the culture, say a little bit about what that journey was like to sort of um, change how you did things uh, at Trader Joe's. Well, I mean, it, it, it's, uh, you know, it's one of those things, kind of like a fence post, you know, you keep pounding on something and eventually it sinks in. And so uh, part of it was the iterative process of my own learning and the company's learning, you know, it was that, that, the, that the company nationwide was in this dance with learning more about what does customer experience mean? What does customer satisfaction really mean? What's it really mean to put your customer first? And then at the same time, they care deeply about their employees. So what do we do to make sure that, you know, they're not getting left behind in this? And, uh, and so I think that, you know, part of the process is to engage with your customers. So one of the things that always worries me is if nowadays people think, it's like people say, I have a million friends on Twitter. You know, it's like, well, okay, I guess that's one way if you want to define friendship. But I would, I would say that, um, if you want to really engage, you know, customers, if you want to have those customers that are, you know, 80% raving fans, you, you can't do it without interacting with them, without, you know, getting out in the stores and asking them, what can we do better without having a team, without having an organization that is open to and, and constantly trying to Kaizen, you know, that continuous incremental small improvements, not the great big bangs of aha ideas that come around every five or 10 years, but that every day we're going to be a little better than we were yesterday. What can we do? How can we do it a little better for you? And it's everything from, uh, and, and Trader Joe's really got, uh, in my opinion, um, really world-class on training and just developing uh, classes for and uh, tools for management to look at things through the customer's eyes. You know, everything from, you know, videos to everything else to where you go, you know, let's start where management every day has to step back and, and start to approach the store like a customer. Well, how's the, how's, how's the front look? Is there little pieces of paper? Is it a mess? When you first come in, what's the temperature inside here? How lines, how heavy is the music? You know, is it too loud, not loud enough? I mean, just otherwise what happens is you get down into the weeds of doing the business and you, you, you forget what the customer's experience is. You, you get so, attuned to do we have enough product you know on this shelf or or you know i got to get scheduled this person to that no we got a load coming in at you know in an hour and a half as compared to are there enough shopping carts where they need to be is the signage right is it stocked well is it lit well a lot of stores have these sort of what i'll call vial uh, aisle violators they're like either stacks of product you got to like you know like a slalom ski thing go between or they have 50,000 special offerings that are sticking out on each other. It's like, suddenly it's like nothing's, nothing's a value because everything's for sale. And so the, the question really is, if you're looking at a customer, you know, is this an easy store to shop? Where are the pinch points? 
do I really open up a register every time there's more than two people in line? Mm. Am I doing that? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really, you know, retail's detail, yep. but it's really about creating teams that care about this. And they care about this because they start to understand this is the secret that's going to differentiate us from everyone else. And so I would get to the point where I would, uh, when I would meet with uh, teams, I would say, uh, and there was a, 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 a radio program, very popular in Boston called Car Talk uh, on uh, NPR. And these two guys would get together and talk about cars, right? And I would say, I don't, I don't really care about cars, but I love listening to these guys because within 10 minutes of listening to them, I'm laughing, I'm having a good time because they've given me an experience. In my opinion, that a good retailer at store level should think of itself as a customer experience company it just simply delivers it through food. Now, the buying team can't think that way. Their job is to go get great deals and great products, et cetera, et cetera. But once you got the product there, and once it's, then it's like, what experience can I give my customer? You know, that, what great the, uh, experience. The favorite stories I've heard you tell is about the cashier and the lady who bought. Oh, you yeah. see if you could tell that because. I've, I've heard you refer to employees and customers as two wings of the of, of a bird, right? You, you know, you can't overemphasize one or the other. But it's really the bond and the connection between them that ultimately becomes the secret sauce in a way. So that that story, I think, is uh, is sort of demonstrative of that. If you could share that. Yeah, well, this was uh, uh, one of my learnings when I came from the West Coast to the East to bring Trader Joe's to the East here, was that when there's a big, massive snowstorm, a nor'easter, they call it, that everybody scrambles out and buys like it's the Cuban Missile Crisis. I mean, it's like, you know, or like we now know with COVID. I mean, they just go out and they would just buy all this stuff. And, you know, uh, I was always puzzled, but we had a store that is in Scarsdale, New York, that um, I had uh, a customer call me and said, hey, I want to tell you about an experience I had. Now, usually if a customer calls and talks to the president, I'm going to be like giving gift cards or like, what can we do to make things right? Um, and this one was, I got to tell you about an experience I just had in your store. I go, okay, all right. You know, putting on my non-defensive communication and, you know, and relaxing into, all right, here it comes, you know. And she said, well, I just want to let you know that, you know, we had this huge nor'easter that's just coming and I'd rushed with my two young daughters, put them in the cart, went through the store, filled my cart to the brim, got up to the register. And as you know how you guys take everything out of the cart, I don't unload it. You do that for me. I said, yes, yeah. said, so really appreciate that. So we bagged it all up. And I looked down and I left my purse at home and all my orders now bagged up and there's this long line of people and everybody's in a hurry to get out of the store. And the cashier looks at me and says, don't worry about it. I've got you covered today. Um, next time you're in, pay me back. And she was shocked. And this is before anyone else in line could even begin to get a sense like, wait, what's going on? Oh, am I in the wrong line? Hey lady, what's, what, what are you doing? You know, it's like, he did it seamlessly didn't embarrass me. He didn't ring bells to go get the manager to come over and look at me. And are you trustworthy? And what, give me your name and address and you know, any of that stuff. He let me walk out with the groceries and go home, put them away. I immediately got my, my wallet. I drove back to the, to the store. She tells me, I, I go to give him, you know, the money back and then a tip. He says, oh, I can't take that. And she says, oh, I just want to make, I want to make sure you're rewarded for this. He says, Oh, go tell my store manager. Um, and so, she goes to the store manager and he said, well, if you really want to make sure the guy gets credit, here's the guy, he's the president of the company, give him a call and tell him what, what happened. <laughs> so, um, of course, as she said, 
You've won me for life. And the, the key other side of this, so that's the customer's experience. Great customer experience. Knock their socks off. From the employee standpoint, when I was down in the store traveling, probably, oh, 60 days later or so, I sought out this individual and they said, hey, 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 by the way, I got to ask you something. Where on earth did you get the idea of pay for the Because this isn't in the manual of pay for a customer's groceries. <laughs> I was like, where did you get this idea? He said, well, you know, in our core values, number one is integrity, you know, to treat people the way you'd want to be treated. Mm-hmm. So the first thing that went to my mind is, well, how would I want to be treated? One, I'd want to be trusted. I came in with the intention to buy the groceries. I, I, I'm good for it. Two, don't embarrass me. Mm-hmm. You know, don't shame me. Don't embarrass me. And so I said, I got to treat the customer as I'd want to be treated. Love it. I love it. Now, you know, I think it's really important in retail, the role of leadership at the store level. And I know that at some point you, you rethought what that role was. And, you know, to your point, um, have the store leader be more in front of the store than in the back of the store and, and make that change. Um, say a little bit about, about how, what, what that was like to try to, try to help make that change happen. Well, I think that this this came out of a uh, you know the, the this came out of an understanding of the company that we've had that look our most engaged employees are our, should be our store managers. They often have the longest tenure. They have the most at stake. They're the putting in long hours, etc. And yet, if we're not careful, they're the ones that are least interacting with our customers. Shouldn't you have your most engaged employees interacting with most with your customers? So. We ended up with um, basically redesigning stores, getting rid of back offices where they could go hide, you know, making sure they're out on the floor and that basically asking them to get out and interact with customers on, you know, at least a minimum percentage of their minimum, meaning a X percentage of their time scheduled is you've got to be out on the floor with customers. And the same way that uh, we had a bunch of store uh, managers that frankly didn't do well with that change. They've been hired in an old paradigm where I'm here to move things. I mean, my job is to manage stuff. Now you want me to like be interacting with customers? Like, I don't like customers, you know? And it's like, well, clearly you're not the new Trader Joe's 2.0 sort of uh, uh, store leader. And so um, we lost a couple of people because they just couldn't make the shift. Like, I've got to be out interacting with customers. And by the way, we were... With those, with those staff, we weren't telling them to be out there and be Guy Smiley, you know, or, you know, to try to put on a personality. Just go be yourself. You know, if you're somewhat introverted, just, just kind of pay attention, kind of go, hey, you know, how's it going today? Can I help you with something? Or, you know, is there, you know, anything we can do better? Uh, and you don't have to be the bubbly, you know, false personality, because we all have that internal radar that tells us that person's, acting out of character. There's something about that that doesn't ring true and it puts us off. So the most important thing is, you know, got to be authentic. And um, yeah, and so what we did as an organization was we made sure that management knew that they and then their, their you know, at that time, the uh, uh, assistant manager called First Mate and others were spending plenty of time out on the floor with customers learning and um basically engaging with them to make sure they're having the best possible experience. Mm. 
That's great. And, um, you know, I th we've, we've been talking about conscious capitalism and you've been doing a great job of talking about Trader Joe's and your experience there. And one of the things I want to come back to is uh, I know you didn't retire. I like the way you already just describe it as I graduated on to my next, my next course. And I know one of the courses that you've been working on is a, a wonderful um, social enterprise called uh, Daily Table. And um, I wonder if you tell us a little bit about what, what, what have you learned um, about running, quote unquote, a conscious organization, uh, moving from a for-profit to a social enterprise? And how does that fit into this conversation? Yeah. Well, it's, uh, uh, yeah, so when I, when I, I like to say graduated, because I, 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 at the time I, I even told uh, the team at Trader Joe's said, listen, I'm not going to look at this as a retirement party, like a funeral where everybody gets up and says he was a good old guy or something like that. Like he's dead. So this is like a, this would be like a college graduation when you celebrate this. I don't know what I'm doing. Like many people after they get college don't know what they're going to do, but they still celebrate. They got a college degree. Um, and so I said, I'm not sure what I'm going to do, but here's what I do know. I believe in lifelong learning. And when you're done learning, you're done. So, um, I didn't know what I was going to do. I went and did this fellowship at Harvard for a couple of years, out of which um, sprang Daily Table. And what I will say is that, uh, and what it really is, is a, uh, I'd like to think an innovative approach. It's a different way of, of tackling hunger in America. It's a different way of tackling food insecurity. Uh, because one of the key learnings I had when I was at Harvard and talking to everyone from the CEO of Feeding America on down was that uh, people are hungrier to keep their dignity and even their health sometimes. And that the handout model that we have has a power differential built into it, where the person handing it out has the ability to withhold or have a, have a power differential from those in need that are getting it. And because of that, a lot of people are just ashamed, don't want to deal with it. So what if I could instead flip that model and create a hunger relief agency, a, a health incentive in a neighborhood that masqueraded as a corner grocery store, where we had to earn their patronage every day, yet our entire intent is to get healthy food into a community and have a healthier outcome. So that's what Daily Table was about. And what I will say is I had some real learnings that although it's a nonprofit, that, you know, in my opinion, that we're still part of the capital, capitalism system because we run a business. You know, we got to earn customers who voluntarily, you know, uh, interact with us. We got to go out and compete. But we compete not just for the customer to come shop with us. Our form of capital, which actually exists with, with other companies, but it's not as obvious sometimes, is in um, acquiring funding. So there are 1.4 million nonprofits or so in the United States. They all are out scrambling for funds. So it turns out that your main uh, uh, marketplace that you've got to win over is your funder. Mm. Uh, because without that, you're dead. So uh, one of the things that makes Daily Table a bit unique and different is that I didn't want to be solely uh, dependent upon charitable giving because one of the learnings I had at Harvard was that 75% of a nonprofit's management's time is spent in fundraising, mm. which means if you stop and think about it, that 75% of the highest paid, most engaged people aren't spent, their time is not spent in better services or product it's spent simply to get funds to deliver on the mission. So my idea was, what if we could get funds by the delivery of the mission? 
So what if we put our stores down into inner cities so that every time a customer came in, we we're delivering on our mission. Here's someone who is struggling to eat well that could come and get fruits and vegetables and clean dairy and protein and grab and go meals and things, all at SNAP eligible and at prices that were you know, cheaper than junk food. We'd be delivering on a mission. Yet every time they went through the register, they became a funder. Mm. So I'd like to say that every shopper is a funder. And we cover currently about 70% of all of our expenses from just our own internally generated sales, uh, which is world-class in the, uh, uh, the, the hunger food space we're in. I will say very quickly, on the conscious capitalism side, there's some real learnings. One is that uh, more than even in the normal business, this is one where you want to form, you don't want to silo. When you're dealing with social challenges like poverty, hunger, you know, um, global climate change, et cetera, whatever it is that are big systemic problems, there's no single organization, no single vector, no silver bullet's going to take care of it. And so you band together as best you can to as many organizations, as many channels to go in after it so that you can become part of a spectrum that's going to cover uh, the solution. And that's what we do. So my uh, attitude is that food banks are necessary. They're essential in America and they're not sufficient. There's not a food bank in America that can, that can feed a family all the food they need. Uh, they can give them supplemental you know, handouts. And in the same way, Daily Table itself couldn't solve this problem by itself, that we need each other and that this is a problem when it comes to social entrepreneurship, that you have to look at success in a different way. Success is literally every time a customer walks through that front door and buys a product that's going to lead to their health that they wouldn't have been able to afford. Mm. They would have gone for chips and soda and instead they got a fresh apple and a salad. And um, that, 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 so when people ask me, hey, when, when will you know you're successful? The answer is we're successful, you know, a thousand times a day. Our real, then what you're really asking me is when can you expand your impact? When can you have a larger impact, more success, if you would? So that's one of the, that's one of the key learnings I've had uh, besides the fact that we're dealing with a, um, we're dealing with employees since we hire from the neighborhoods. We, uh, 90% of our employees come from a mile, mile and a half radius for a store and our people of color, et cetera, like the communities we serve. Um, that it took me a while and it took my wife, who's a trauma therapist, to volunteering there for several years to realize the degree to which there is low to high levels of PTSD in almost every employee we have. Mm. And to be very blunt about it, um, it turns out living in Boston, which is a relatively racist city, and if, you, if it isn't intentionally, just look at the geographies and the redlining that's occurred, et cetera, et cetera, in the history that you don't have to go back a century to look at race riots when you started busing, et cetera, uh, that it's a city that has got beneath the skin of a very liberal population, a very strong sense of otherness. And so it's stressful to be a person of color in Boston. Next, you're economically challenged. So being poor is stressful in America. And, and then it's also oftentimes not safe. These are the most violent areas of our city. So you've got all of this that leads toward this, a staff that has a hard time focusing on detailed instructions, that has a hard time. All, this, all the things of PTSD 
which we won't bore ourselves with right now, show up. Mm. So we've had to adjust our training, our development, um, et, et cetera. We have not backed away from hiring from the community. Just we now know that it's going to take a different level of interaction than it would have in normal circumstances. Yeah. This is a true healing organization Doug, that we've created. And you know, I know you also hire returning citizens who have been incarcerated, etc. And they often have doors slammed in their face. So thank you so much for that noble work that you've been doing. It's very inspiring. Thank you, Doug, for all you've been doing for conscious capitalism and for setting just a great example of what a conscious leader looks like and, and how do you go about really helping an organization go on that conscious capitalism journey. So thanks so much for your time and your energy today. Thank you. Well, thank you. It's been an honor to be here with you guys. Well, that brings us to the end of our another episode. and. Um, if you have any comments or thoughts you'd like to share with us, please go to theconsciouscapitalist.com and there's a little form there. You can leave a note. And if you've enjoyed this, feel free to hit the subscribe button on uh, whatever channel that you're listening to this. And thanks so much. And we'll see you again next week.